That's a good song, huh? It's got a great message. Boy, our motivation, why we do what we do, amen? Boy, that makes a big difference. Sometimes, you know, I I understand that it's important what we do, but why we do things is also important. That's that's also important, and so it's something that we need to keep in mind, Uh, not just the what we do, but why we do it. And, uh, you know, I know sometimes folks will say, well, it doesn't really matter what you're thinking or why you do, just do the right thing. Well, I want you to do the right thing, and God wants me to do the right thing. He wants all of us to do the right thing, but he does want us to do it for the right reasons. He really does. I think in the long run, we'll find that if it's not done from the heart, if it's not done with the proper motivation, I think many times we might find that it comes up pretty empty. And uh, I don't know. I just want to make sure I'm doing it for the right reason and the right thing at the same time. Amen. All right, well, let's go ahead and take our Bibles. Turn to James chapter 3. Again, we're in our series, When Should We Hold Our Tongues According to Scripture? When Should We Hold Our Tongues? A.K.A. When Should We Shut Our Mouths, I guess. Uh, but uh, when should we hold our tongues? <clears throat> James chapter 3, a powerful passage and uh, a very important passage in the Scriptures. The Bible says in chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, it says, Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths, that they may obey us. And we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which, though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so, the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature." And it is set on fire of hell. Well, I'll tell you, in the passage again, we're dealing with uh, just uh, the tongue. Probably the most um, 
dangerous part of the body, if you will. I mean, you talk about something that has damaged and continually uh, destroyed people and nations and, boy, relationships through the years. It's been the tongue. Tongue's a problem and something that we need to address and deal with. As a matter of fact, in the Word of God, in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 36, the Bible tells us that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. The truth is, is that everything we say is really being recorded, if you will. It's being uh, taken in and it's being kept, and ultimately we're going to be responsible for what we say. Now, obviously, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our, our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. However, the fact is, is that so many times we say things without even realizing what we're saying or when we're saying it. We don't even remember saying certain things that ultimately will come back to bite us, if you will, if we're not careful. So we need to be very, very wise with our tongues. It says, uh, the, the, the uh, writer James says, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able to bridle the whole body. He lets us know that in verse 2, actually. Well, I'll tell you what. James knew the Lord Jesus Christ. He grew up with him in his home. If there was somebody that knew a perfect man, it was James. And he, so he watched and he observed the Lord Jesus Christ and he saw how he controlled his his emotions. He watched how he controlled his tongue. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ and he said, man, I'll tell you what, if you can control your tongue, then you're a perfect man because he's the only one I've ever seen do that. And I do believe that it's from his experience he's speaking here and he's uh, recognizing that reality and he's referring uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ as he speaks here in James chapter 3. The Bible says, whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from troubles goes on to say in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 27 and 28, he that hath knowledge spareth his words. You would think that if you had knowledge, you'd say more. You'd think if you had some understanding, if you had some thoughts in your mind, you'd want to share those. But he says, he that hath knowledge spareth his words. If you know anything, he says, you'll be very careful what you say and when you say it. And a man of understanding is an is of an excellent spirit. Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise, and he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. So we got to talking about the tongue. We said, now when is it scriptural? When, when scripturally should we hold our tongues? Well, we said, when you're tempted to flatter a wicked person. We said, if you're supposed to be working, you ought to hold your tongue. If in the heat of anger, hold your tongue. When you don't have all the facts, hold your tongue. When you're tempted to joke about sin, Hold your tongue. If you'd be ashamed of your words later, hold your tongue. Before you make a vow or a promise that you're not going to keep, hold your tongue. And when you're tempted to tell an outright lie, is hold your tongue. And so we've discussed those issues and kind of looked over some of those ideas and thoughts. And I want to pick up tonight and just continue on that vein and kind of address those, uh, some other issues or times when we ought to hold our tongues. Boy, I'll tell you what, if we would put into practice this truth, if we would truly be very careful and hold our tongues, we'd find that our lives would be better. Our marriages would be better. Our homes would be more peaceful our lives, our work, our, our world would be in a better place if we just learned to hold our tongues. Well, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer and then we'll continue tonight. Father, we love you. We are grateful again for your goodness and for your mercy and your grace in our lives. We thank you so much for the salvation that's ours in Christ Jesus. We ask tonight that you would just bless us. 
that you would meet with us in a special way. We understand that in us and in and of ourselves there's nothing good. We thank you for the indwelling presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in our life through the person of the Holy Ghost. Thank you for the relationship that we can have and enjoy while on this earth. We don't have to wait till we get to heaven to enjoy you. We can do that right now. Bless us now and speak to our hearts through your word and may our lives be enriched and may we be more full because of the word of God tonight. May we leave here encouraged, blessed, motivated, moved, that we might live a life that's pleasing in your sight. We understand that's our true purpose for existing, to bring pleasure to you. May we do so by holding our tongues when necessary. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So when should we hold our tongues? Well, if your words will damage someone's reputation or destroy a friendship. I mean, if your words will damage someone's reputation and destroy a friendship, you ought to just hold your tongue. Take your Bible, turn over to the book of Proverbs chapter 16, would you? Chapter 16, verses 27 and 28. We'll look at just two, ver- two verses here and consider this thought. And I have a few things that I want to share with you uh, in relationship to it. Proverbs chapter 16, verses 27 through 28. <clears throat> the Bible says, An ungodly man diggeth up evil, and in his lips there is as a burning fire. A froward man soweth strife, and a whisperer separateth chief friends. Well, I'll tell you what, we've got somebody here in the passage that's struggling with their tongue. We've got a couple different descriptions of people. First of all, the passage addresses the, odd, uh, the ungodly man right off the bat. It says the ungodly man, it, it says that, that this guy diggeth up evil, and his lips, there is a, uh, and his lips there is as a burning fire. The ungodly would be the wicked, the I guess those that neglect the fear and the worship of God, that would be the definition of an ungodly person. Someone that's violating the commands of Scripture, a wicked person, an ungodly man or woman. It says that particular person, it, it goes on to say that, that basically he diggeth up evil and his lips there is as a burning fire. I see his direction here. He diggeth up evil. Boy, somebody that's ungodly, somebody that's wicked is always digging up evil. I mean, that's a problem, isn't it? Always searching for evil and, and, uh, uh, evil and always following after evil, searching for the wrong things. But I'll tell you what, we got a problem in Christianity today. And the problem in Christianity today is that we are not satisfied with godliness. We're not satisfied with righteousness any longer. It doesn't meet our need. We've been so inundated and so saturated with the world that we really don't believe that we can possibly exist without evil in our lives. And I know that you say, well, that's not really true because we're not evil. We're very good and godly. I know, but if you would start to dissect your life, and I know as I'd start to dissect my life, I realize that there are some things in my life that don't truly line themselves up with the Scriptures. And I wonder about that, and I say to myself, why is it that I allow certain things in my mind? Why do I allow certain things maybe even in my life? How come that's the case? I'll tell you why. Because I'm not fully satisfied with him. He's not enough in my life. It's not because he himself is not enough. It's because I don't allow him to be enough. It says the ungodly here. 
his direction, digging up evil. He seeks evil. He even runs to evil. We find ourselves moving toward it if we're not careful. And again, I believe tonight we have a tremendous group of folks that have gathered tonight that do have a desire and want to do right. But the truth is is that in our flesh we are nothing but sinners. And we need to be very careful that we don't get so high on our hobby horse that we somehow believe that we have overcome and we are more victorious than anyone else. That somehow because we are saved, because we go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, or possibly Wednesday night as well, because we teach a Sunday school class or work on a bus route or possibly sing in the choir or play an instrument somehow some way that means that boy we've overcome all this stuff we got to be careful with this his direction he diggeth up evil boy i tell you be careful not only that but we see his downfall here it goes on to say and in his lips there is as a burning fire We've talked about the tongue quite a bit along the way and so we're not going to go ahead and rehash verses and other passages that we've already looked at but Let's be honest. In his lips, there's a burn. Uh, it's as a burning fire. We got problems here. See, there's all this. The, his tongue and so forth always leads to destruction. His lips always lead to destruction in that sense. Unwittingly, listen. Unwittingly, this guy, this ungodly man, is using his tongue to his own destruction as well as so many others as well. Uh, You do not get away from it yourself. When you don't control your tongue, I don't control my tongue, it hurts me. But it also hurts a number of others around us. Boy, I tell you what, his direction and his downfall are seen here. But the passage goes on to talk about the froward, too. He says right off, he says here in the passage, and a froward man soweth strife. He soweth strife. We see his desire. Again, we're still dealing with an ungodly person. Someone that's froward is still ungodly. I mean, the word froward means perverse. That is, turning from with aversion or reluctance, not willing to yield or comply with what is required. I want you to think about that, that phrase, not willing to yield or comply with what is required. Let, let's say that again. The froward man or woman is someone that's not willing to yield or comply with what is required. And someone says, that's good. That's the word of God. Yes, it is. And I want you to think about this for a minute because the truth is we'd turn to our teenagers and say, well, the Bible says you're to obey your mom and dad. So if you won't obey your mom and dad, you are froward. And you want to know something? They would be. Because they're not, as the, as in, in definition of the word, they're not willing to yield or comply with what is required. They're unyielding, ungovernable, refractory, disobedient, peevish. As a froward child, that's exactly what Webster 16, eight, or excuse me, 1828 says. But let me tell you something. You and I can be the same way at the workplace. Amen. We can be the same way in the home. We can be the same way in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We can be froward. Notice he soweth strife. His desire, this froward, the froward man or woman, his desire, her desire is to, to sow strife. That means conflict or discord. That's not something that pleases God. That is not something that God enjoys around, or especially when it comes to his people. It wants nothing to do with that. So when we look at the ungodly man, this froward man, or this whisperer, we see their direction, their downfall, their desire. But I want you to note their delight. It says the whisperer here. He, he or she is up to no good. My, my mom used to say, if you have to whisper about it, then you shouldn't say it. If you have to whisper, don't say it. 
I mean, my mom was a, a so, you know, my mom was a good mother, but there were some things she just didn't put up with or tolerate. You know that old saying, if you can't say something nice, say nothing. I heard that a million times. Now, I had three brothers, so there are four boys. Now, I don't know, but moms, if you have boys, you know they're pretty rambunctious. They can get pretty uh, crazy at times. And we'd get to saying things or shouting things or calling each other names. Brothers never do that. But we did a few times. My mom said, if you can't say something, I say nothing. Or we'd get over there and go, you know. She'd say, don't. If you can't say it out loud, don't say it. Because she knew that the whisperer, really, that person whispering was up to no good. Was saying something they shouldn't be saying. Saying something that shouldn't, be, shouldn't go forth out of their mouth. And you know, we see here the, the, the delight of the whisperer is to separate chief friends. Give the impression that chief friends, and again, you could probably define this a number of ways, but really, I mean, let's just make it real simple. Those that are strong friends, those that are really good friends. Boy, I'll tell you what, somebody that's a whisperer in that sense, their end game results in division. That's all there is to it. They take pleasure in wrecking and ruining relationships by using a froward, froward tongue. They may even feel justified in it. Isn't it funny how we feel justified in some of the things we say, even though they hurt and harm people in relationships? Well, I'm just speaking my mind. I'm just telling the truth. Yeah, with that attitude, that's not the kind of truth we need necessarily. But either way, it doesn't matter. The end result is separation and sorrow. Boy, God's not pleased with that at all. I mean, this froward man, this ungodly man, this whisperer, we see their direction, their downfall, their desire, and their delight. And in the end, when it's all said and done, it it ends in broken relationships. It ends in destruction. It ends in ruin. God never intended that for you and I. As believers, we are not permitted to act this way, to respond this way. I want you to take your Bible, look over Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. If your words will damage someone's reputation or destroy a friendship, then we ought to just hold our tongue. Let's not be like the ungodly. Let's not be like this froward or this whisper. Let's not be that person. How different should the believer's attitude and actions be compared to that of the world? Well, we find that God has provided us an escape. We don't have to respond the way the world does. We don't have to act the way the world does. Look at Galatians 1.4. It says, Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father. You and I have been delivered from this present evil world. Now, why in the world would we respond? Why would we act as the ungodly? Why would we be like the froward or the whisper? Why would we respond that way, whether it's with our tongue or our life? When we have been delivered already, we have been given an escape from this world, from the bondage of sin, who gave himself for our sins. And it came with a great price, didn't it, this deliverance? He gave himself. That he might deliver us from this present evil world. So we see the escape. But I want you to see the expectation for you and I. It's different than the world. Do you realize that God does not uh, give these, this direction to the, the lost? He gives it to you and I. I. I'm not here to preach this message to the lost. That is a lost cause. 
I'm here to preach this message from the Word of God for the same reason James was to the church. Because as believers, we have, we have been, we've escaped the world. And we see the expectation in Ephesians 4.31. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. That's the expectation. Get rid of it. Put it aside. Be done with it. And then we see the exhortation. In 1 Peter, turn there if you would please. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 10. God says, let all bitterness, wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Why? Because you have escaped this present world. And because you've escaped this present world, my expectation for you is different than it would be for the world. I'm not saying that God says it's right for the world to respond this way. But what what he is saying is, is that in the world, it's different than when you're not of the world. And you and I have escaped this present world. We've been delivered. And as a result, the expectation of God upon us and in our lives is different. Can I tell you this? The expectation that I have for my children when they were growing up was different than my expectation for yours. These were my kids. Sometimes I would look at other kids and I'd go, well, I can't control them, so what they do is their business. But my kids, that's a different ballgame. That's a different ballgame. They don't live in that environment. They don't live in that house. They don't live under those circumstances. They live in my home. They have me for a daddy. They have my wife for a mother. And you know what? My expectation is different for them than it is anyone else. And God has a different expectation for his children than the world's children, the devil's children. And here he's exhorting us now in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. For he that will love life you ever run into somebody that hates life? Have you ever run into that person, you knock on their door, and you start talking to them about heaven, and, or you say, listen, I just wonder if you died today, are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven, you know, or you know you'd be, uh, you know, 100% sure you'd uh, be in heaven, and they say, well, you know, honestly, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't really know. And you get talking to them a little while, and pretty soon this comes out of their mouth. Well, I personally believe that, listen, I personally believe hell's on earth. Have you ever had anybody tell you stuff like that? Well, I just believe hell's on earth. I mean, I've had that happen to me on more than a few occasions. And, and, and I, I don't hear it a lot as much now, but years ago, I used to hear it quite a bit. I, I just began to believe hell's on earth. And I got to thinking, you know what? Life must be pretty miserable to believe that. It's got to be miserable for you. And, and I don't get upset with somebody that says that. As a matter of fact, my heart breaks for them because they must really hate life. Life must really be a bummer, we would say. It says, for he that will love life. Do you want to love life? I do. I want to look at life and say, man, it's a wonderful thing to live on this earth. I'm not saying that everything about the world is lovely or wonderful or I'm in love with, but I'm going to say this. I love life. I love what God's given me, and I appreciate and enjoy the time that I have with family, friends, and loved ones and serving the Lord Jesus Christ here. The world of the living this life is a wonderful thing if it's lived for the right reasons. For he that will love life. But if you want to love life and see good days, I don't know about you, but I want good days. I don't want bad days. 
Let him refrain his tongue from evil. Isn't that something? Of all the things that, that Peter could say, of all the things that God would have him write, he says, listen, do you want to, you, you know, if you will love life and see good days, refrain your tongue from evil. He goes on to say, and exhort them, and his lips that they speak no guile. Boy, how much of happiness and joy is found in the tongue and how we respond with our tongues then? Think about how many times we've wrecked and ruined our own relationships. Think about the way we've spoken to our children or possibly as a young person how you spoke to your parents. Think about how the tongue has wrecked and ruined relationship after relationship after relationship. If only we'd have kept our mouth shut. If only we would have held our tongues. What could have been? But I, I am not taking that. They're going to know how I feel. You don't talk to me that way, Buster. I'll, I'll give you a thing or two. And that usually ends real well. I'm not saying that there's not a time when you have to share and, and lay down the law or tell you, say what has to be said. That's not what I'm in, implying at all. But I am saying this, most of the time when we say things in that spirit, it doesn't come out the way it ought to. And it doesn't do anything to help. It only hurts and harms. He goes on to say, for he that will love life and see good days, I think all of us want both of those, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Wow. Man, go after that thing. I don't know about you, but in my home, I always wanted peace. I tried to structure our home between me and my wife. We tried to structure our home for peace. I mean, the children are going to take naps whether they like it or not. I don't care if they're going to just lay in bed, but you will not stand up and play around. You'll lay down for an hour or two hours. See, I'm structuring for peace. You will not talk to your mother that way. You will not respond to me that way. You will not backtalk us because that is anything but peace in the home. We structured our home for peace. We ensued it. We made it a priority in our life. We want peace in our home. We want peace in our marriage. We want peace in our family. And we fought for that. Strived for that. We ensued peace. We went after it with all our hearts. Sometimes we throw in the towel too quick, don't we? Well, this thing's a mess. Ain't nothing I can do about it. Whatever. Kids are kids. You just got to deal with it. Really? Is that what the Bible teaches? Just got to deal with it? I think you need to have a little higher expectation for yours. I think you have a little higher expectation for, for those that are in your home. I think you ought to pursue and ensue peace. You ought to look for it. Strive for it. And settle for nothing less than. He that will love life and see good days, well, if you want those things, then let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. In Psalm chapter 30, 133, verse 1, the Bible says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Man, how pleasant, how, how good is that? How pleasant is that? I don't know about you, but I, I enjoy the house of God. And can I tell you why? One of the main reasons is because I enjoy the people of God. 
you, you can go ahead and say what you want. And, and, and I understand that people of God are not perfect. I, I get it. They, they mess up. They make mistakes. They do wrong things. They say stupid stuff. But I've also know what the people say out in the world. I also know how they respond to people. I know how they talk about folks. I know how they act toward others. I know how they take advantage of people. And sure, there are problems in the house of God. And at times there are issues. But it ain't nothing like the world's issues. Rarely does it get to that level. And if it does, it's usually because there aren't strong enough people there to handle things. I'm not saying that people can't do horrible things. Well, what about somebody that molests a child? What about a teacher that does this? What about two people that run off together and leave? And Yeah, I know, those things happen in the church too, I get it. But they don't happen as much as it happens out in the world. You can go ahead and choose what you wanna, where you want to grow your roots. Choose where you want to raise your family. In that world where that is just common? Or in the church where, if anything, it's an exception to the rule? I'll choose the house of God. It's not a perfect place because, unfortunately, there aren't perfect people. Why would God spend time telling us to deal with our tongues if it wasn't going to be a potential problem? I think God knew well ahead of time that we, you and I both, would struggle with this issue. But peace is what God wants for us. He wants us dwelling together in unity. Um, I read about a particular, they call it a Yiddish folklore. You've you might have heard the term if you're probably my age or older. You've heard that before. If you're younger, you're probably like, what's he talking about? What is Yiddish? Absolutely have no idea, but I've heard it before. Anyway, a folklore, and it offers a telling tale about gossip makers. It goes like this. One such man had told so many malicious untruths about the local rabbi that, well, over the, the, over, over, overcome by remorse, he begged the rabbi to forgive him. He said, Rabbi, please tell me how I can make amends. The rabbi sighed and said, well, take two pillows, go to the public square and there, cut the pillows open and wave them in the air, then come back. Well, the the gossip quickly went home. He got two pillows and he grabbed a, a knife and he ran on up to the square. He cut the pillows open, he waved them in the air and he hurried back to the rabbi's chambers and he said, I did what you said, rabbi. The rabbi said, well, good. And then he smiled and he looked at the man and he said, Now, to realize how much harm is done by gossip, go back to the square and, and, and what? Collect all your feathers. Now go collect all your feathers. Let me ask you something. Do you think he found all those feathers? Do you think he was able to gather them all back together and put them neatly into a pillow again? Absolutely not. I guess what I'm saying is, is it doesn't matter how sorry you are and how sorry I am for some of the things we say. When we act like the ungodly or we speak like the froward or we are like whispers as the world is and God warns us not to be that way, my friend, let me tell you, you can't gather all the feathers back up. It's too late once you've shared those things, once you've said those things. You've hurt and harmed people in ways you'll never even know. There's a story that's told of a prosecuting attorney in a small town 
courthouse. This prosecuting attorney called his first witness, and it was an elderly woman. He called her to the stand. He approached her, and he asked her, he said, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? Do you know me, ma'am? She said, why, yes, I, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a young boy. And frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat, you manipulate people and talk about them behind their backs. You think you're a rising big shot, but you haven't the brains to realize you'll never amount to anything more than a two-bit paper pusher. Yes, I know you. The lawyer was kind of stunned. Not knowing what else to do, he pointed across the room and he said, Mrs. Jones, do you know the defense attorney? She said, why, of course I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster, too. I used to babysit him, and he, too, has been a real disappointment to me. He is lazy, bigoted, and has a drinking problem. The man can't build a normal relationship with anyone, and his law practice is one of the shoddiest in the entire state. Yes, I know him. At this point, the judge is rapping on the... Order in the court. Come to silence. Calls both of the lawyers up to the bench. In a very quiet voice, he said with menace, if either of you asks her if she knows me, I'll hold you both in contempt of court. (laughs) I'll tell you what, you got to be careful with that tongue, don't you? You got to be careful with that tongue. My oh my, my, how it'll destroy people, wreck and ruin lives. It's unbelievable, really. Not only that, but we've seen and we've talked about this idea that if your words will damage someone's reputation or destroy a friendship, you ought to hold your tongue. Well, let me give you one more very quickly. When you're feeling critical. When you're feeling critical. You ever have one of those days where nothing's right, everything's a mess? I mean, there's nothing good about the world, nothing good about your life, nothing good about the family, nothing good about the job. Everything's a mess. I've had a few of those. James chapter 3, turn there, would you please? James chapter 3, verse 9 through 10. This verse, uh, maybe I'm stretching this one slightly, but the principle is certainly good. James chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. We'll look at a couple of verses very quickly, though. Notice what it says in James 3, 9 through 10. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men which are made after the similitude of God, out of the same mouth proceeded blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. It's not how it's supposed to be. On one hand, we're blessing with our tongue. On the other hand, we're cursing with our tongue. It's not talking about cursing as in just cussing or something. We're talking about saying negative, critical things in a sense, in essence. And, and, and the Bible's telling us right here, that's not the time to speak. Don't use your tongue in that manner. A critical spirit presented a tremendous problem for Moses and the children of Israel on their journey. Boy, I'll tell you what, they had problems with a critical spirit. Let's go ahead and break this down a little bit. Do I have somebody in this group that will read Exodus 14, 10 through 12? You have to have a King James Bible, and you have to be willing to stand and, and speak very, very loudly. Exodus 14, 10 through 12. Can I get somebody to do that? Josh, if you would, that'd be great. Joshua Starkey, please. Thank you. 
And then how about somebody here, Exodus 16, 1 through 3. Who will read Exodus? Okay, Brother Terry, good. And then uh, Brother David, you raised your hand. Why don't you read for me Exodus 17, 1 through 4. Exodus 17, 1 through 4. And then I'll tell you what, let's go ahead and uh, um, let's see here. I need one other guy. I need one other one. Okay, brother. Yeah, if you would, please. Exodus 32, 1 through 4. All right, now let's go ahead and read these. Now watch, you can listen. You don't even have to look them up. Just listen to what's said. Now you got to read loudly and clearly, okay? Uh, And so let's go ahead. Let's start over here. I can't, oh, brother. Okay, yeah, if you would, please. That, that's 10 through 12. And they said unto Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Really, it's going to be better, huh? Isn't that good? It'd be better to be slaves in Egypt than to be out here on our own. Yeah, I mean, at least we would be able to be in our homes tonight instead of being slaughtered by the Egyptians. Although God hasn't done anything to prove himself yet. But the point just being is, once again, we have this critical spirit. Here's Moses trying to lead the people of God through the wilderness. Man, that's a tough enough task for anybody. But now he has this group that's rather critical, cynical. That group continues to exist throughout their journeys here, at least early on. Notice what it says in chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Go ahead and, yes, Brother Terry. Eat bread to the full. Is that how it was going? We were, man, every need was met. Boy, I'll tell you what, it was a smorgasbord every night. Are you kidding me? Here they are now needing food, right? God's going to provide a manna, but we still got the critics amongst us. Before is the Red Sea, now's the manna. But now we're going to see that they need some water, and so here we are at the water from the rock, Exodus 17, 1 through 4. Look, the critical spirit still exists. The murmurers and complainers are still with us. Go ahead. Here we go, that critical spirit again, murmuring, complaining. Nothing new for the Israelites then. This is pretty commonplace. 
Pretty sad, though, isn't it? Okay, Exodus 32, 1 through 4. Yes, brother. Whether it was the Red Sea, whether it was the time when they needed food or manna and God provided manna, whether it was a time when they were thirsty and God provided water from the rock. In this case, we have the golden calf being, being formed by Aaron. It doesn't matter. It seems that there's always this, this group of critics. There's always those that are murmuring, complaining. It just seems that it doesn't matter where you go, no matter what happens here in Israel, somebody's not happy about something. May I say that sounds a little bit like what we deal with every day, doesn't it? I mean, think about our own children at times if we're not careful. One of the biggest things we work on with our children is to teach them not to complain, to be grateful for what they have. You put a plate of something in front of them, they go, I don't like that. Well, learn to eat it anyway. Be quiet and eat it. Be thankful. Somebody says, well, you shouldn't make a kid eat anything they don't like. You'd be having a hard time finding something they like. You'd be feeding them uh, sugar every day. You know, well, eat your vegetables. I don't like vegetables. My mom never fed me vegetables, so I didn't have to like vegetables. But anyway, the, the, the fact is, is that some parents do. They, they put vegetables in front. You teach your kids. They've got to learn. There's some things you do in life, even though you don't like it. And you don't complain. You just do it. Well, I'll tell you what, the people of God here are having a rough time. You know, there are some folks in churches that just are never happy. Doesn't matter what happens. There's folks at work where you work. There's, fo- there's students at school. It doesn't matter how good the, the faculty is. Doesn't matter how great the programming is or how good the education. They just can't stand. Something's always wrong. Boy, don't you, doesn't that drive you crazy? Boy, I'll tell you what. Think about Moses and all these millions. And here he has this group running around being cynical and critical. Boy, I'll tell you, that's destructive. Whether it's a ministry, whether it's a home, whether it's a marriage. Matter of fact... In order to uh, uncover the processes that destroy unions or uh, unions, and I'm talking about marriages, uh, marital researchers studied couples over the course of years. I mean, they spent years. Matter of fact, even decades. And um, they were trying to retrace the, the steps of those who have split up back to their wedding day. So what they did was they were, they were interviewing people. They were talking to people. They were going back, dealing with folks, trying to understand What led people to ultimately separate? What led them to ultimately go their own ways? And when uh, what they are discovering is is rather unsettling, they say. And it's interesting because God already knows all this, but they're catching up. None of the factors one would guess might predict a couple's durability actually does. Uh, Not how in love a newly couple says they are. That's not really what's most important. Or how much affection they exchange. That's not really the most important thing. Or even how much they fight or what they fight about. That's not it. It goes on to say, in fact, couples who will endure and those who won't look remarkably similar in the early days. You can't really tell. You look at a couple and, and, and they may have some differences, but in the end, oh, you know, everybody's loving, everybody likes each other, everybody's this, everybody's that. And they look remarkably similar. 
Yet when psychologist Cliff Notorious of Catholic University and Howard Markman of the University of Denver studied newlyweds over the first decade of marriage, they found a very subtle but telling difference of the beginning of the relationships. Among couples who would ultimately stay together, listen to this now, five out of every 100 comments made about each other were put-downs. Five. These are the ones that would stay together. Among couples who would later split up, 10 out of every comments were insults. Now, I know what someone's thinking, and let me finish this before we address the issue, but that gap magnified over the following decades. So before you assume and say, well, of course they're saying more horrible things and harmful and hurtful, hateful things, these ones that are separating, because there's problems in the marriage. Yeah, but this is starting at the beginning. At the very beginning, they went off to say, you know what, probably if we had to really think it through, we were somewhat critical. We were, were 10 out of every 100 uh, statements about one another were in a sense put downs versus the ones that ultimately stayed together with five out of 100. It only grew worse as the couple stayed together over the decade. He says the gap magnified over the following decade until couples heading downhill were fighting five times as, oh, excuse me, were flinging five times as many cruel and invalidating comments at each other as happy couples. Hostile put-downs act as cancerous cells that, if unchecked, erode the relationship over time, says Notorious, who with Markman co-authored the new book, We Can Work It Out. In the end, relentless, unremitting negativity takes control and the couple can't get through a week without major blow-ups. Let me tell you something. What it's saying is simply this, that how you speak to your wife or your husband, how you use your tongue, if you're negative, you're critical, you're cynical, let me tell you something, you have a good possibility your marriage is going to end in divorce. You better get a handle on that attitude. You better get a handle on that tongue because that tongue will destroy your marriage. And if you can't find something good about your wife, you better go back to the day when you married her and remember what it was about her then and start to remind yourself because, friend, I'm telling you, she's the wife that you have. And if I would go back probably to the day you married, you would have told me in that day that God put you together. Now, I know she's not saved today, but she was then. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? I'm just saying this. Be very careful how you speak to one another. And that critical, cynical attitude translates into broken marriages, broken homes, wrecked and ruined lives. So when you're feeling critical, hold your tongue. Negativity and criticism are very destructive. Our words and attitudes hold much more water than we can really imagine. May God help us with our tongues. It's a problem. It needs addressed. It needs dealt with. And I don't care how good a Christian you and I might want to believe ourselves to be. This thing right here is an enemy we have to deal with at times. Quite often, probably more than not. And let's be careful that we do not use our tongue to hurt and harm. As we noted even just today, if your words will damage someone's reputation and destroy a friendship, hold your tongue. When you are feeling critical, Hold your tongue.